Chapter Twelve, Part Two of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Number. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter Twelve, Part Two. Admiral Ting formed his ships in line abreast, that is, side by side, with every bow towards the enemy. In the center were the two little battleships, with the armored cruisers Lai Yuen and King Yuen to right and left of them. On each flank of these four heavy ships there was a group of three unarmored cruisers, the Ching Yuen, Chao Yung, and Yang Wei on the right, and the Qi Yuen, Quang Chia, and Si Yuen on the left. These were the ten ships on which he relied to bear the brunt of the fighting. Away to the left flank and rear of the line, and nearer the shore, was the small armor-clad Ping Yuen, the corvette Quang Ping, and four torpedo boats. The Chinese fleet was under easy steam. The ships were painted a dull black, but had a large amount of gilding and color on their bows, upper works, and deck-houses, and they were all dressed with flags. The decks had been strewn with sand, to prevent accidents by men slipping, and flooded with water from the fire-hose to minimize the danger of fire. The fleets were now rapidly closing. McGiffin, the American officer of the Chen Yuen, was impressed with the holiday aspect of the scene. The twenty-two ships, he wrote in an account of the battle, trim and fresh in their paint and their bright new bunting and gay with fluttering signal flags, presented such a holiday aspect that one found a difficulty in realizing that they were not there simply for a friendly meeting. When the range of the leading Japanese ship, the Yoshino, was just 5,400 meters, or something less than three and a half miles, the Chinese admiral fired one of his heavy barbette guns at her from the Ting Yuen. The shot fell short, throwing up a great fountain of foaming water. The guns of the other Chinese ships roared out, and the line was wrapped in smoke, but the gunners had not the range in most cases, and their shooting was everywhere bad. Untouched by the hostile fire, the Japanese fleet came silently on. At first the Japanese line had been heading directly for the Chinese center. It now altered its course, ship after ship, the Yoshino leading the line so that it would pass obliquely across the right front of the enemy, and beyond the extreme right of his line, the wing of Ting's fleet that was furthest from the shore. At a range of about two miles, the Yoshino began replying to the Chinese fire with her bow guns and her starboard battery, and the other ships opened as they reached the same range. Thanks to McGiffin's narrative, we know what was the impression made on the few skilled observers in the Chinese fleet. The advancing line of hostile cruisers was wrapped in a dense cloud of smoke, out of which rose their tall masts. Through the smoke came a continual flicker of the long red flashes of the Japanese quick-firers. To men used to the old guns, the rapidity of the fire was something startling, but the Japanese had just missed getting the range. The showers of shells were falling ahead of the Chinese ships. The sea in front of their bows was a mass of spurting columns and fountains of foam, and some of these geysers of seawater shot up so close ahead that they splashed over the Chinese ships, and numbers of men on their forward decks were drenched to the skin. But as the rain shortened, the rain of shells began to find its target, and fell crashing and exploding on the hulls and upper works of the Chinese line. It had now lost something of its first formation. The center had surged forward, the wings had hung back, and it had become slightly convex. Ito, in his report, stated that Admiral Ting had adopted a crescent formation, but this was only the result of his ships not keeping station correctly. His order had been to fight in line abreast. Presently the line became so irregular that some of the Chinese ships were masking each other's fire. The slow fire of the Chinese guns, ill-directed as it was, did little damage to the Japanese cruisers. 
but the Chinese ships were already suffering from the shower of shells. The Japanese found themselves faced with an unexpected difficulty of detail. In the older type of guns, the silk cartridge case was burned when the shot was fired. But with the quick-firers, the solid-drawn brass case of the cartridge, a thing like a big metal can, is jerked out by an extractor as the breech-block is swung back after firing, and these brass cases began to accumulate in heaps at the gun positions. Extra men were sent to the batteries to throw them overboard. The Yoshino was now on the extreme flank of Ting's right, about a mile away from the Yang Wei. Count Ido signaled from the Matsushima for the van squadron to circle round the enemy's fleet by changing its course to starboard. This would bring the weaker ships of the hostile squadron under a crossfire from the van squadron, sweeping round astern of them, and the main squadron crossing their bows obliquely. At the same time, the ships on the Chinese left had most of their guns masked by their consorts, and could only fire at relatively long range with their bow guns at the rearward ships of the Japanese main squadron. Ting was outgeneraled and was paying the penalty of a bad formation. His weak right wing was in imminent danger of being crushed by superior numbers and weight of fire. The two ironclads in the Chinese center had been made the target of the heaviest guns in Ito's fleet. Theoretically, these guns should have been able to pierce even the heavily armored plating of the barbettes, but no projectile penetrated the armor of the two ships, though shot after shot came thundering against them. Their unarmored parts were pierced again and again, the shells bursting as they entered, and lighting several fires that were extinguished with difficulty. But the unarmored ships on the Chinese right were suffering terribly under the crossfire of the enemy's van and main squadrons. The two outer ships on this flank were the Chao Yang and the Yang Wei. Each of these ships had a barbette armed with a ten-inch gun fore and aft. Amidships was a raised structure carrying machine guns on its roof, and having on each side of it a passage, off which opened a range of wooden cabins, oil-painted and varnished. Under the rain of bursting shells, these masses of dry, inflammable woodwork were soon ablaze. The fire spreading rapidly made it impossible to bring up ammunition for the guns, and the two cruisers drifted helplessly out of the line, each wrapped in clouds of black smoke, through which long tongues of red flame shot up into the air. On the other flank, practically no damage had been done by the few shots fired by the Japanese in this direction. But here there was a miserable display of cowardice on the part of the Chinese. The ship on the extreme left was the C.U.N., which still bore the marks of her encounter with the Naniwa Khan in the first days of the war. The experiences of that adventure had evidently got on the nerves of Captain Fong, who commanded her. As the Japanese line swung round the other flank, he suddenly left his station and steamed at full speed away from his admiral, crossing astern of the Japanese at what he thought a safe distance, and heading for Port Arthur. The rearmost Japanese cruiser, the Chiyoda, sent a shell after him that dismounted one of his guns and added wings to his flight. The Kuangchia, the next ship in the Chinese line, followed his bad example, and leaving the battle raging behind them, the two cruisers soon disappeared over the southwestern horizon. Fong, with the C.U.N., reached Port Arthur. He said he had been in the thick of the fight, and only left it when the day was lost, but the evidence of his own crew was against him. He was promptly tried by court-martial and beheaded. The other ship, the Kuangchia, never reached Port Arthur. She was wrecked during the night after the battle, with much loss of life, on a reef outside Talianwan Bay. There were some other instances of half-heartedness or worse among the Chinese as the fight developed, but on the whole they fought bravely, and many showed the most self-sacrificing courage. 
while the large japanese cruisers of the two squadrons kept perfect station and distance and enveloped the chinese right wing with as much precision as if they had been carrying out a fleet exercise in peace maneuvers the older ships in their line less speedy and handy had dropped astern and were under fire from ting's two ironclads in the centre the fuso was at one time so close to them that one of the ironclads made an attempt to ram her but the japanese ship evaded it and running along the broken front of the enemy rejoined the main cruiser squadron the other of the old Japanese ironclads, the Hiei, boldly steamed between the Chinese battleships amid a storm of fire. Two torpedoes were discharged at her, but both missed, and she joined the van squadron in the Chinese rear. The little Akagi was for a while the target of many of the Chinese guns, and one of her masts went over the side. Ito had signaled to her, and to the armed merchantmen Saikyo Maru, that they might keep out of the fight, but Japanese courage would not allow this. The Saikyo Maru had a narrow escape. As the two burning cruisers drifted away from the Chinese right, making for the Yalu, the Saikyo pursued them, firing her light guns. Two Chinese gunboats opened upon her, and four torpedo boats steamed out to attack her. But she turned her fire on them, and some of the Japanese cruisers helped her by accurate shooting at long range. The Chinese flotilla, which had expected an easy prey, turned back, and gunboats and torpedo boats disappeared in the Yalu estuary. But in the brief encounter, the Saikyo Maru had received a good deal of damage from the light guns of the hostile flotilla. Her funnel was riddled, and several steam pipes cut through. She retired from the engagement. With her went the Hiei, which had been seriously damaged in her dash through the Chinese center. The Akagi also withdrew to clear her decks, which were encumbered with wreckage. The fall of her mast had killed her captain, Sakamoto, and her two lieutenants were badly wounded. So far, Ting had lost four of his unarmored cruisers, and Ito had sent out of the fight three of his ships, the old ironclad Hiei, the gunboat Akagi, and the armed steamer Saikyo Maru. But none of these were fighting units of serious value. His two squadrons of protected cruisers were intact, and it was on these he counted for victory. The second phase of the battle was a prolonged cannonade at a range of from one to two miles. Thanks to the superior speed of the Japanese fleet, Ito could choose position and distance, and the training of his officers and men enabled him to concentrate his fire now on one part, now on another of the straggling Chinese line. His ships poured out a steady shower of shells, whose heavy bursting charges not only scattered hurtling fragments of steel among the Chinese crews, but also had a tendency to light a hot fire wherever they exploded. The Chinese had a very poor supply of inferior ammunition, most of it armor-piercing projectiles, that were practically solid shot. Their fire was slow and ill-directed, and even when it found its target, the damage done was seldom serious. Two more Chinese ships were soon disposed of. The cruiser Chi Yuan had been pluckily fought by her Chinese captain Tang and her English engineer Purvis. She had received several shots between wind and water and was leaking badly. Tang knew she could not be long kept afloat, and he made a desperate resolution to attempt to ram a Japanese ship before he went down. As the enemy's van squadron, headed by the Yoshino, came sweeping to closer range with the Chinese left, the Chi Yuan made a dash for the leading cruiser. Even if she had not been half sinking already, the Chinese ship had neither the speed nor handiness to ram the swiftest ship in the enemy's line. As the Chi Yuan came on, the guns of the van squadron were concentrated on her. She was enveloped in a fierce storm of bursting shells, and suddenly her bows plunged in the sea, her twin screws whizzed for a moment in the air, and then all that was left to show where she had sunk was floating wreckage and drowning men. Purvis went down with his ship. Tang was seen swimming on an oar for a few minutes with a big dog, a pet of his, paddling near him. Then the dog put its paws on his shoulders, and he was forced under and drowned. 
Another Chinese cruiser, the Lai Yuan, which lay in the line to the right of the two armor-clads, was now seen to be burning fiercely. On board this ship the Chinese engine-room staff showed devoted courage. While the fire spread through the upper works, so that after the fight many of the iron deck-beams were bare and twisted out of shape, not one of the brave men below quitted his post. Stokers, engineers, mechanics worked almost naked in heat like that of a furnace. Some died, all were in the doctor's hands after the fight, but they kept the engines going, obeyed orders, and brought the half-burnt ship out of action. More than half of the Chinese fleet had now been destroyed or beaten off, without any loss to the main fighting force of the Japanese. Disregarding the Chinese cruisers, which were now badly cut up and firing harmlessly at long range, Ito concentrated his attack on the two armor-clads. Though each ship was hit more than four hundred times, their armor was never pierced, yet the Japanese had some guns that theoretically should have penetrated it. Battle results are, however, often very different from experimental work on the testing range. Early in the fight a Japanese shell had cut down the foremast of the Chinese flagship, sending overboard and drowning seven men who manned the top, carrying away also the signal yards, so that no orders could for some time be conveyed to the fleet but for more than an hour Admiral Ting was in no condition to give orders. Almost at the outset he had carelessly taken a position that brought him within the danger arc of the blast from his own big barbette guns. He was stunned, and for a while it was thought that he was dead. The ship was fought by two European officers, Herr Albrecht, a German, and Mr. Nichols, who had formerly been a petty officer in the British Navy. Albrecht distinguished himself by more than once going to terribly exposed positions and personally handling the hose with which he extinguished the fires lighted by the Japanese shells. Nichols directed the barbette guns with a cool courage worthy of the service in which he had been trained, until he was killed by a bursting shell. Two other white men, the German soldier, Captain von Honecken, and the American commander, McGiffin, took a prominent part in the fighting on board the other armor-clad, the Chen Yuan. Both had more than one narrow escape. Von Hanneken was stunned for a while by an explosion and slightly wounded while at the barbette guns. When the lacquered woodwork of the bow burst into flame and smoke and none of the Chinese would go forward to extinguish it, McGiffin, who was in command of the ship, dragged the fire hose to the danger point. Just as he had drowned the fire, he was wounded in two places and stunned by a bursting shell. He had told the men in the barbette not to reopen fire till he rejoined them, but, to his horror, as he recovered from the shock, he saw the guns swing round and point directly over the bow. He escaped being blown to pieces by dropping through an open hatchway. Altogether during the fight, the Chen Yuan was on fire eight times. Most of the Chinese crew fought pluckily, but there were some skulkers. McGiffin tells how once, when there was something wrong with the revolving gear of the barbette guns, and he went down into a recess under the barbette to clear it, he saw a group of frightened men huddled in the semi-darkness, and heard the voice of a Chinese officer saying, You can't hide down here, there are too many of us already. But he tells also of the courage of others. The captain of one of the guns was killed as he prepared to fire, the man's head being shattered by a shell, and his brains scattered over the gun. Another man dragged the corpse away, took the lanyard, looked along the sights, and fired without a moment's hesitation. Sao Kai, the gunnery lieutenant, was badly wounded and taken below. He had brought his brother, a mere boy, on board for a holiday, and had him beside him in the barbette. The boy remained there to the end, helping to pass up ammunition and apparently regarding the fight as an interesting game, though he was the only unwounded individual in the barbette when the battle ended. McGiffin asserts that when the fight began, the Chen Yuan had in her magazine, besides a quantity of armor-piercing, almost solid, shot, only three really effective shells for the 12-inch guns. Two of these were fired early in the day. 
In the afternoon, in handling the ammunition, a third was discovered. It was fired at the Matsushima, Ito's flagship, and did terrible execution. Ito, in his report, says that the incident occurred at 3.26 p.m. and that the shell came from the Ting Yuen, but this appears to have been a mistake. The shell dismounted a five-inch gun, seriously damaged two more, and exploded a quantity of quick-firing ammunition that was lying ready near the guns. According to the Japanese official report, 46 men were killed or badly wounded. Unofficial narratives make the loss even greater. One officer was simply blown to pieces. The flame of the explosion set the ship on fire, and she was for a while in imminent danger of destruction. The crew, writes Mr. H. W. Wilson, with unabated gallantry and courage, divided their attention between the fire and the enemy. The bandsmen went to the guns, and, though the position of the ship was critical and her loss appalling, there was no panic. The fire was on the lower deck, just above the magazine. In charge of the magazine were a gunner's mate and a seaman. The shell had apparently dented the plating over the powder, and the red glow through the crevices showed the danger. But these brave men did not abandon their post. Stripping off their clothes, they crammed them into the cracks and saved the Matsushima. Though nearly a third of the men above the waterline had been put out of action, the remnant got the fire under. While the fire was still burning, the Matsushima steamed out of the fight, and Ito transferred his flag to the cruiser Hashidate. This was really the second narrow escape that Matsushima had experienced during the battle. Early in the fight, a ten-inch shell had passed through her side, killed four men in her torpedo room, narrowly missed a loaded torpedo, smashed up an oil tank, and then broke into pieces. Examination of the fragments showed there was no trace of a fuse, and a plug of cement filled the place where the bursting charge should have been. It was really a bad specimen of a solid shot. If it had been a live shell, it might well have destroyed the Matsushima. It was thanks to the wretched ammunition supplied by swindling contractors to the mandarins that the Japanese were able to fight the battle with such trifling loss. After the transfer of Ito's flag to the Hashidate, the battle became a cannonaded and increasing range. The Chinese ammunition was running low, and Ito, after having had his quick-firers in action for hours, had also his magazines nearly empty. The heavy fire of the afternoon had failed to destroy the two little battleships that represented the only remaining effective units of the Chinese fleet. Ito had accomplished enough in the destruction of the Chinese cruisers, and he had no intention of giving their torpedo boats a chance by spending the night near the mouth of the Yalu River. At half-past five he broke off the engagement. Shortness of ammunition supply and exhaustion of officers and men were probably his real reasons, for the explanation he gave in his official report is not very convincing. About 5.30 p.m., he writes, seeing that the Chen Yuan and the Ting Yuan had been joined by other ships, and that my van squadron was separated by a great distance from my main force, and considering that sunset was approaching, I discontinued the action and recalled my main squadron by signal. As the enemy's vessels proceeded on a southerly course, I assumed that they were making for Weihai Wei, and having reassembled the fleet, I proceeded upon what I supposed to be a parallel course to that of the enemy, with the intention of renewing the engagement in the morning, for I judged that a night action might be disadvantageous, owing to the possibility of the ships becoming separated in the darkness, and to the fact that the enemy had torpedo boats in company. However, I lost sight of the Chinese, and at daylight there were no signs of the enemy. There really were no ships of any importance available to join the Chinese ironclads, so one is puzzled to imagine what Ito saw. It was only when the firing died away that Admiral Ting sent orders to the Quang Ping, the transports, gunboats, and torpedo craft to come out. Only the Quang Ping and the torpedo boats obeyed. As the sun went down, he formed line ahead and steered for Port Arthur. 
First came the two ironclads, then the Lai Yuan, with her upper works still on fire in places, then the Ching Yuan, Ping Yuan, Quang Ping, and the torpedo boats. Far astern, the abandoned Chao Yung blazed like a bonfire in the twilight. Ting honestly believed he had beaten off the Japanese fleet, and on his arrival at Port Arthur reported a victory. But though Japanese opinion was not quite satisfied, Ito had so damaged the Chinese fleet that henceforth he held command of the sea. He had won his success with comparatively small loss. Of all the units of his fleet, his flagship, the Matsushima, had suffered most. She had two officers killed and three wounded, and thirty-three men killed and seventy-one wounded, a total of one hundred and nine, and about a third of the losses in the entire fleet. The Hayei came next in the casualty list, with fifty-six killed and wounded. The losses of the other ships were trifling. The Ikitsushima had thirty-one killed and wounded, the Akagi twenty-eight the Akitsushima, 15, the Fuso, 14, and the Yoshino and Saikyo, each 11. The Takachiko had an officer and two men wounded. The Naniwa Khan, Captain Togo's ship, one man wounded. The Chiyoda, which lay next to the Matsushima in the main squadron, had not one single casualty. The official return of losses gave these totals. Officers killed, 10. Officers wounded, 16. Total officers lost, 26. Men killed, 80. Men wounded, 188. Total men lost, 268. Total killed, 90. Total wounded, 204. Total losses, 294. There are no available returns of the Chinese loss. It was certainly much heavier, perhaps a thousand men. But thanks to their armor, the two battleships suffered comparatively little loss, notwithstanding the terrible fire to which they were exposed for hours. The Ting Yuan had fourteen killed and twenty wounded, the Chen Yuan seven killed and fifteen wounded. The two ships afterwards took part in the defense of Weihai Wei, where one was torpedoed and the other captured by the Japanese. When the first reports of the Yalu battle reached Europe, there was much exaggerated talk about the value of the protected cruiser. It was even said by amateur naval experts that this type and not the battleship would be the warship of the future. It is almost needless to say that the battle conveyed no such lesson. If anything, it rather proved the enormous resisting power of the armored ship. If Ting, instead of his two antiquated coast defense armor clads, had had a couple of up-to-date battleships manned with trained crews, he would certainly have disposed of a good many of the Japanese cruisers. The Japanese quite realized this and proceeded to build a heavily armored fleet. The most valuable lesson of the battle was a warning of the danger of fires lighted by exploding shells. This had an immediate influence on ship construction and on the methods adopted by all navies in clearing for action. But the most important point of all was that the conduct of the Japanese officers and men in the battle and in the subsequent naval operations in the siege of Weihai Wei made the world realize that a new naval power had arisen in the Far East. End of chapter 12, part 2. Recording by Nick Number.